Thank you for tuning in to Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. Hi, my name is Vanessa. How's everyone tonight? <laughs> I'm one of the leaders for the Young Adults Ministry and the Hope in the Streets Ministry, Um, and I'll be reading Philemon 12 through 25 tonight. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he would take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel but I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you and the Lord, Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one thing more, prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends your greetings. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Thank you. Great job. Thank you, Vanessa. It is so good to have scripture read over us, isn't it? It is a powerful thing. Um, In 2019... Uh, I read a a novel entitled News of the World. I don't know if any of you had the chance to read that book. It was subsequently turned into a movie starring Tom Hanks. And the storyline of the book was that there was this um, retired uh, Confederate general captain from uh, the army. And after he retired, he got a job traveling around to North Texas small towns and reading people the news. So imagine you don't know what's going on in the world and probably most of your town is illiterate at the time and somebody shows up with a newspaper in hand and packs out an entire banquet hall with people waiting to hear what's going on in the world. Needless to say, depending on what the news was, some people responded with joy, others with lament, some with shouting, and others with uproar, but people responded. And I I get the sense that as people read, as Philemon read this little letter, you would have had a very similar scene on your hands in Philemon's little house church. That some people, as Philemon read this letter from Paul, would have been 
excited and overjoyed. Other people would have been a little bit caught off guard. But I think if we could just visualize the scene of the first reading of this, what we would see is shock cascading among the different faces in the crowd as the hierarchical structures of the society that they had grown up in fell around them. In so many ways, Philemon wasn't news of the world, it was news of of a new world. A new world that was breaking forth. As I've read over this letter a number of times over the last few weeks, trying to get ready for this short little series, I've started to ask this question, God, why was this little letter preserved? I mean, you read half of it already tonight. We read the other half last week. You can read it in a few minutes. It's a few hundred words long. In some ways, it seems quite insignificant. And yet in other ways, I think it draws out and unearths part of the human experience that we can all relate to. It transcends culture, it transcends time And it speaks to what it means to be human and some of the struggles that we often find ourselves in. Those struggles, I I thought, were epitomized by a story that I read about two families who were neighbors just outside of Munich in Germany. Their earliest conflict that was taken to court was over an elderberry bush that was ill-planted, according to one of the neighbors. So they took their neighbors to court because of the way that this bush was on their side of the property. (laughs) But it didn't stop there. It culminated with one of the neighbors building a 12-foot high privacy fence to block their other neighbors from being able to see into their yard. Numerous lawsuits were brought. There were accusations made of trespassing, disturbing the peace, etc., etc., etc. Oh, and by the way, on top of that 12-foot-high privacy fence, they adorned it with barbed wire just in case. Oh, and did I mention that they lived in a duplex? They shared a wall with each other. I think in so many ways, the reason that Philemon applies to our lives today is because conflict is a part of the human experience. Relational conflict is something that we can all relate to on some level. I mean, you look back through the stories that we tell in our history, stories like the the Montagues and the Capulets from Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. Or if you fast forward a few years, the Sharks and the Jets. Or my guess is you probably used to watch something like this on Saturday morning cartoons with Wiley Coyote and the Roadrunner. Can I get an amen? Or maybe let's bring it a little bit more contextual in San Diego. And yeah, you got the Dodgers and the San Diego Padres. Um, my youngest son has decided that he likes the Dodgers and it, he decks, yep, decks himself out in Dodger gear almost every day that we, well, every day that we will let him. And I'm convinced it's because his brother loves the Padres. I mean, we are just seeing this play out in our family. Or maybe you remember back to when Kanye West West tried to steal Taylor Swift's award, right? And the feud that started there. Or if that doesn't apply, certainly the conflict between Republicans and Democrats will. I think in so many ways, these stories and others like it echo the human condition of conflict somewhere along the way. Someone said something or did something that wounded us, that hurt us, and we responded to that hurt. Now, 
I don't want to minimize this at all. I know that there are people in this room tonight who have been abused. You've been stolen from. You've been taken advantage of. You've been manipulated. Some of you have had covenants broken. You made an I do covenant and it was broken. You've been lied to. And I know that there is some deep pain that we all carry on some level around relational conflict. And so if you're here tonight and you're hurting, I just want you to know that we see you, that God sees you, and this is a safe place to say, I'm wounded and I'm hurting. But it's also a place to lean in and to say, God, will you begin the process or continue the process of healing? See, the truth of the matter is we don't get to choose whether or not we're wounded in this life. We only get to choose how we respond when we are. And your response when you're wronged determines your level of freedom. Let me say that again. Your response when you're wronged determines your level of freedom. You can start a feud or you can move towards freedom, but you cannot do both. And I think some of us, we have just loaded up this backpack full of offense that we carry around and it is weighing us down. And I believe that Jesus wants to bring some people in this space, freedom tonight. Because how we respond when we're wronged is not only an issue of freedom, it's an issue of the gospel, it's an issue of the kingdom of God, and God longs for you and for me to walk in his freedom. And I believe that that's what this letter that Paul wrote to Philemon is all about. So let me briefly catch you up on where we've been in this series, which, by the way, just includes last week and tonight. So, bad news is, if you missed last week, you missed half the series, um, Good news is you're here tonight, so you're going to catch at least half this series. So uh, we're studying this letter that Paul wrote. He's the author, and he wrote it presumably from a jail cell. Now, Paul is an apostle, and while he was in jail because of the gospel, he met a runaway slave by the name of Onesimus, and he led him to faith in Jesus. In a plot twist that even Hollywood would be proud of, it turns out that Onesimus' slave master, whose name was, anyone guesses? Philemon, was somebody that Paul led to faith just a few years earlier. And so when he meets Onesimus, they start to talk about this man named Philemon. And it, it, most people think that when Onesimus ran away from Philemon, he stole something from him or wronged him in some way. Now, a quick word on slavery in the ancient world in case you missed last week. There were certainly brutal forms of slavery in the ancient world, but it wasn't exactly like what we read about in the history of the United States. It wasn't so much based on race, and it often functioned a little bit more like an employee-employer type of relationship. So as you read through the letter to Philemon, Paul doesn't outright condemn the practice of slavery. But, but, in this short little letter, he plants a time bomb inside of it that would eventually explode it from the inside out. See, this letter isn't so much about the institution of slavery as it is about finding freedom from the slavery of bitterness, of revenge, and of anger. Every single one of us can fall prey to. Like I said, most people think that Onesimus stole something from Philemon. He was wronged in some way Philemon was. We know that. 
and we all have a response to the way that, a response when we're wronged. And here's the way that we often respond. Get angry and get even. Can I get an amen? I mean, when somebody takes advantage of us, when somebody hurts us, when somebody wounds us, our response is often, I'm going to get angry and then I'm going to get even. I'm going to start a feud. (laughs) But here's the truth of the matter. I have never, in years and years of pastoring, I have never sat across the couch or a coffee table from somebody and heard them say, I'm so glad I've been carrying this anger. No one's ever said I'm better because I'm carrying this anger or this bitterness or this rage. No one has ever said to me, you know what, Ryan? I'm so glad I have this desire to get even. No, get angry and get even is like loading a backpack full of weight up and carrying it around every single day. It's the reason that the Apostle Paul, when he writes to the church at Rome, he says to them, Repay, and say these two words with me, Emmanuel Faith, no one evil for evil. Quick time out. I just want you to look to see, is there a footnote at the end of the page in your Bible that says, well, repay no one unless they really, really hurt you. Or repay no one unless they do fill in the blank. Anybody have that footnote? Okay, yeah, no, me neither. Repay no one. But even, what, Paul, what about the person that that took advantage of me, that manipulated me? What about that person that lied to me, that stole from me? Repay. No one. Evil for evil. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, I love that, because it's not always possible. So far as it depends on you, and only part of it depends on you, the other part depends on someone else, Live peaceably with how many people? All, all. And then at the very end, Paul gives this little promise. He says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This um, word overcome in the Greek is the word nikao. Will you say that with me? Nikao. It's where Nike got its brand name from. It means to be victorious or to conquer or to come out on top. So listen to what Paul's claiming. Paul is claiming that evil gets the victory when you hold on to a need to repay somebody who has done you wrong. Let me say that again. Evil gets the victory in your life when you hold on to a desire or a dream to repay somebody who's done you wrong. But by way of contrast, oh, you, you, you become victorious over evil when you respond with, with good. When you respond with, with forgiveness. When you respond with grace rather than holding a grudge. See, here is what Paul is going to teach both Philemon and us this evening. The process of forgiveness. The process of forgiveness is a pathway to freedom. And I'm convinced that God wants us to walk in more freedom tonight. And this little letter of Philemon gives us a window into a new world that is bursting forth all around us. It's a world that nobody in the ancient world expected or talked about. It was good news of a new world that was inaugurated by Jesus. A powerful, 
powerful subversive picture of what it means to live in the kingdom of God. And so that's where we're going tonight. We're going to get a a picture of the process of forgiveness in the second half of this little letter. But before we go there, I think we need to establish some terms for our conversation tonight. Because we're going to talk about this word forgiveness, and, and I think it would benefit us to just define it so that we're all on the same page and thinking about the same thing. So what is forgiveness? Forgiveness is the act of setting someone free from an obligation to you that is a result of a wrong done against you. Okay? And you may want to write that down. You may want to take a picture of it. But that's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is the act of setting someone free from an obligation to you that is a result of a wrong done against you. So here's what forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not condoning the wrong, saying what was done is okay. Forgiveness is not forgetting the wrong. Have you ever heard the phrase forgive and forget? Good luck with that one, right? Luckily, that's not what forgiveness is. It doesn't mean forgetting. Forgiveness does not mean that you eliminate the consequences or the penalty of the wrong. It also doesn't mean that you trust somebody again or that you reconcile with the wrongdoer. It means that you release them from any obligation they have to you because of what they've done against you. It's you saying, you don't owe me anything. Okay. So, deep breath. Would you close your eyes? And we're going to just do a very short practice that we call listening prayer. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to ask the Spirit of God, God, would you bring somebody to mind that you want to work with me about tonight? Bring a face, bring a name, bring a situation. Just wait for him to do that. Because we want to take this out of the abstract and put it into our actual, real, everyday lives. Okay, you got your person? If you don't have a person, ask your neighbor who their person is and you can think about them. Okay? No, I'm just kidding. Don't do that. That'd be really awkward. Okay? Verse 12. Here we go. Verse 12. With that person in mind, listen to what Paul wrote to Philemon. He said, I'm sending him, Philemon, back to you. I'm sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but by your own accord. I love this. That everything in the kingdom of God is done by invitation, not by compulsion, not heavy handed. It's simply God saying, I'm inviting you forward to more life for your joy and my glory. What do you say? What do you say? For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. Don't you love this? The Apostle Paul isn't heavy-handed. He doesn't play the God told me card, right? He says, perhaps it might be that he ran away and met me in order that he might be restored in relationship to you. And then he says that he might be restored no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant as a beloved, say it with me, Manual Faith, brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. 
I said earlier that this little letter puts a time bomb in the institution of slavery that eventually blows it up from the inside out. And I would argue that this is one of the places that it does just that. More than a bondservant, but as a brother. Paul is challenging Philemon to change the way that he views Onesimus. When he sees him coming, he doesn't see a slave walking down the road. He sees a brother. That their relationship is no longer defined by social status, who's on top, who's on the bottom. He is defined solely and only by his God-given identity and value as a child of the Most High God. And this is the very first step in the process of forgiveness. We have to ascribe value to our fellow human beings. Kingdom forgiveness is built on the ground that we are all equals. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Every single person carries the image of God and they have worth and they have value, not only in the eyes of God, but in our eyes as well. If you believe it, say amen. It was um, Tom Holland, who is actually an agnostic, but wrote about the influence and impact of early Christianity. And listen to what he said in his wonderful book, Dominion. Here's what he wrote. He said, Christianity is why we generally assume that every human life is of equal value. Here's his point. Here's his point. If you subtract Christianity from the pages of history, you have no ground to stand upon that will affirm the value of every single human being. That is a uniquely Judeo-Christian contribution to our society at large. And so he's going, as followers of Jesus, this is, some, this is ground, that, sacred ground, hollow ground that we stand on. And it's true even for people who hurt us and wrong us and take advantage of us. They still have worth. They still have value, not only in God's eyes, but they ought to have value in our eyes as well. I love the way that Croatian theologian Miroslav Volf put it in his great little book, not little, but great book, Exclusion and Embrace. Um, Here's what he said, and he turns this a little bit for us to see it differently. He says, forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans. He says, we, we have a tendency to dehumanize people that wrong us. And to say they're, they're lesser than in some way, some shape, some form. And he says, even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. Here's his point. There have been instances in your life when you have not been the one who was wronged, but the one who wronged someone else. And when you did that, you were still fully and completely human and valued as such. And so we need to be people who ascribe value even to people who treat us wrong. So will you bring back that person to mind that God was inviting you to think about during our time tonight? Would you picture them and affirm, yes, even they have immense value to God. He or she is created in his image And even though they caused great pain, they still have great worth. Now, now that that foundation is set, listen to what Paul says next. So if you consider me your partner, receive him 
as you would receive me. Receive him. I believe that that's the primary call of action that this letter is intended to evoke within Philemon. Receive him as you would receive me. So if you were going to make me a dinner when I show up, make him a dinner. If you're going to prepare a, a place for me to sleep, prepare him a place to sleep. Treat him exactly as you would treat me. And this word receive, we tend to think of it as something that's passive, right? Like, like a receiver in football who's waiting for the ball to come to them, right? If, if it's a Bronco receiver, they're waiting a long time for the ball to come. But just waiting... But the word receive that Paul uses here doesn't work like that. It doesn't function like that. It means to aggressively welcome with strong personal intent. So maybe the best picture to have in this uh, receive him phrase is of the prodigal father who pulls up his robe and starts to run down the road to meet his long lost son as he's coming home. He is receiving It's the very thing that Paul is calling Philemon to do, to be an active pursuant of the person who has wronged him. And when it comes to forgiveness and to reconciliation, which we'll talk about in just a moment, I think we often think of it as, I'm going to go halfway. I'm going to meet somebody halfway. But I'm just going to tell you, some people who have wronged you or that you've wronged need you to meet them more than halfway. They need you to receive them, to be an actively pursuing person in their life. Now, like I said, when we talk about this word receive, we're starting to get into the realm of reconciliation, not just forgiveness. And I think it's really important for us to talk about what the difference is between those two words. Because oftentimes the church has been um, maybe a little bit too caught up on forgiveness and they've equated forgiveness and reconciliation as the same thing and done some damage. And so I I just want to make sure we're on the same page in regards to the difference. So what's the difference between reconciliation and forgiveness? First, one person is required for forgiveness. You. Two people at least are required for reconciliation. Forgiveness is always an option, but reconciliation depends on the other person also. Forgiveness is an interior discipline, but reconciliation is an outward working process that means to bring about or restore a relationship that has gone bad and to bring it back to what it was originally. Now, I want you to hear me. If you hear nothing else tonight, please, please, please hear this. Reconciliation is not always possible. And it's not always the goal. Yes, some people wound others to the point where having a relationship with them again is unrealistic and unhealthy. And forgiveness is the best and only option. So I started to think about, okay, well, if reconciliation isn't always possible, how do we know when we should pursue reconciliation? And how do we know when we should stop at forgiveness? It's a great question. I'm so glad you asked that. Because I asked it too, and I asked it of our therapist on staff. Her name is Kathy Morado, and she's wicked smart. And here's what she said in response to my question. Three things. 
how to know when you can start pursuing reconciliation. Okay. The, gen- the, the person who has wronged you takes genuine responsibility for the offense. So they own what they've done. They're willing to name what they've done. And they're willing to not play games like, well, I did that to you because of so-and-so. Or I'm really, really sorry that what I did hurt your feelings. Which is a way of saying, if you were just a little bit stronger, that wouldn't have hurt. Right? No, it's them taking responsibility. I have wronged you. I have hurt you. This is what I did because of the choices I made. I'm not blaming anybody. I wasn't manipulated into doing this. These are my choices and I wronged you. Second, they must repent which means to change their mind about what they did and to ask for forgiveness. This is genuine and humility coming before you saying, I have wronged you. Here's what I did. Here's how I was wrong. I am changing my mind about the way that I'm going to move forward. I'm going to do things differently. Will you forgive me? Will you forgive me? And then finally, And then finally, they must demonstrate true change, which means, and this is really important, it means that reconciliation doesn't happen overnight. Because somebody can't demonstrate a pattern of change, a new pattern of behavior overnight. They have to prove that over and throughout time. Some people have wounded you to the point where it is not safe to start the process of reconciliation with. But some people are working and they are saying, God, I want to become a different kind of person. And for those kind of people who are willing to walk through this process with you, I believe that Jesus would invite you to start to slowly step into the process of reconciliation. After all, after all, the gospel isn't just about forgiveness. You know this, right? The gospel is about reconciliation. I mean, listen to the way that the apostle Paul wrote about this. He said, all of this is from God who through Christ reconciled us, brought us back together to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and trusting to us the message of what? Reconciliation. My goodness, friends, whether it's reconciliation or whether it's only forgiveness either way let me ask you this question what would it look like for you to be the bigger person and to take the first step that's what Paul's challenging Philemon to do receive him receive him and if he's wronged you at all verse 18 or owes you anything charge it to my account I Paul write this with my own hand I will repay it to say nothing of you, your owing me, even your own self. I love, don't you love this? Hey, um, charge it to my account. And by the way, Philemon, I'm not going to bring up how much you owe me. Well, I am sort of going to bring it up, but just subtly, right? Yeah, no, charge it to my account. Why does he say that? Because there's always a cost. There's always a cost. In forgiveness. And when we forgive somebody, part of the process is we absorb the cost. That's what it means to forgive. We have a great example of the way that this functions that's taking place in our cultural moment right now. 
with student loan forgiveness discussions going on. Right when those student loan forgiveness discussions started going on, I'm like, gosh, why did I work so hard to pay off my student loans, right? Is anybody with me? But yeah, with the rising cost of student debt that people are walking out of school with, on average, it's about $40,000 per student who graduates from college, and it's just crippling them financially. And so the government's trying to figure out how to help people who are in this situation. And so they're talking about forgiving the loans. But here's what they're not saying. Here's what they're not saying. They're not saying, okay, we're going to forgive that loan, but you need to give us back the degree that you earned and the job that you got and the experiences that you had in using that money, right? And here's what they're also not saying. They're also not saying, we've got to go and we've got to get that money back. We've got to get it from the professors and the administrators and the grounds crew and the ops people who were given that money to do a job. We've got to go get that money back. That would be impossible, wouldn't it? No, when they talk about forgiveness of a loan, what they're talking about is simply transferring debt from one ledger to another. They're not, it's not being wiped out. Forgiveness never wipes something out. It always just transfers it from one ledger to another. When we talk about forgiveness interpersonally, somebody has to cover the balance. Somebody has to take the wrong. Somebody has to absorb the cost of the offense. It's just not the person who committed the offense. Charge it to my account is exactly what Jesus says as he hangs on the cross, carrying the sin of humanity. He doesn't wipe out or just simply erase the sin of humanity. He bears the sin of humanity. Those are two very different things. And then he buries it in the ground and he walks out with new life in his hands. He bears that sin. That's why forgiveness is hard. That's why we often reject it. Because it's us saying, I will absorb and I will bury that wrong. So I started to ask myself the question, what does that look like in real life? Sort of abstract, but what does it look like to absorb the cost? What does that demand of me? Let me give you three things and I'm going to fly through these because I'm almost out of time. Um, but, But here's what it looks like in real life. Number one, it looks like you and me giving up the right to be angry. Giving up the right to be angry. And I know most of us are too mature to just sort of lash out in anger. But we do have a tendency to live with a low-grade bitterness of anger and resentment where we justify treating somebody poorly. Where somebody just turns our stomach when they start to walk into the room and we respond with a glance or a not going to look you in the eye. Or maybe, or maybe we just simply ghost someone. But all of it is holding on to an anger and believing that we're justified in doing so. Here's the second thing we do. We release the desire for revenge. God, I'm not going to try to get back at this person. I'm going to leave it to you and your justice. And hey, hey, can we, can we just be really honest with each, with each other tonight? 
for some of you in this room, for some of us in this room, that idea of letting go of anger and letting go of revenge is very, very, it strikes up a lot of fear in us. Because if we let go of that anger and if we let go of the desire for revenge, we're gonna be vulnerable again. And that longing to get them back Or that idea, I'm justified in being angry, has built a wall around our heart that keeps us protected from being hurt again. And so when we say we're going to absorb the cost and we are going to let go of the need or desire for revenge, we are also letting go of the fear that is associated with being vulnerable again. But the reality is, friends, an eye for an eye never stops with the eyes. It always bleeds over, pun intended, into our whole being. But when we forgive, we release the dream and desire for revenge. Finally, finally, we are willing and able to say to another person, you've wronged me, but you don't owe me Do you know what that feels like? Freedom. Freedom. Because I'm not lying in bed anymore going, how can I get that person back? Or I wonder if they're going to make things right with me. You don't know me anything. And that's freedom. So, Maybe that means tonight, if you go, that's where I want to be. Maybe tonight it's just, you make the commitment, I'm going to stop bringing that thing up, that event up. Because isn't it true, when we get angry, we turn into archaeologists, right? We start digging stuff, I'm angry. And we just start digging and we're like, what can I get from the past? And then we're like, well, remember when you did this thing, right? And what we've clearly haven't done is absorb the cost to say, I will take that and I will bury it and I am not going to bring it up anymore. Maybe that's a commitment that you make tonight. Here's what Paul says next. He says, yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. That word translated refresh is the word anapao in the Greek, and it means to give rest or to cease from work. And I love that Paul is sort of this financial broker, who, or not financial, but, but a relational broker, who's bringing two people together, and he's going, I find great joy in bringing about and helping to see reconciliation and forgiveness take place. That word refresh is the exact same word that Jesus uses when he says to you and to me, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. I will give you refreshing. But, but you can't hold on to a desire for revenge and be refreshed. You can only do one or the other And Jesus longs for you to come to him and to be refreshed. And most of us know what that feels like, don't we? To release something back to God. We also know what the opposite of it feels like when we say to God, God, I'm going to hold on to this. There was a a few weeks ago, my wife Kelly and I had gotten into this fight right before we went to bed. And I hate that. (laughs) And I was just lying in bed and I was stewing. I was thinking about all the reasons that I was right and she was wrong. And I was praying. I was like, God, 
will you please show this woman that I'm right? May the morning's dawn break with the recognition that she can admit I was right. Amen. Let <laughs> somebody say amen. Right. But you know what I did? I lost two to three hours of sleep staring at the ceiling going, come on, Lord, please. And you know what happened in the morning? I had a realization. I was wrong. And I went to her and I apologized and I said I was wrong and and we hugged and, and almost immediately there's a sense of, of refreshing, of God restoring my soul. And it's exactly what we can anticipate as we walk this path of forgiveness. It's exactly what he wants you to receive tonight, to let go of some of the burden that you're carrying, the desire for revenge, the anger, the bitterness, the I'm owed this mentality and to release it, and to receive his refreshing. Some of you can remember when you finally forgave the person that abused you, and it felt like, oh. Some of you can remember the moment where you were able to look at your ex and not have hatred and bitterness rise up in your soul, and it felt like, oh, refreshing. Some of you know the moment that you released the weight that you were carrying towards the person that should have stood up for you and didn't. And it felt like, oh. Some of you know the moment you released the anger towards the business partner that took advantage of you. And it felt like freedom. Paul ends this letter and he says, the grace of our Lord be, Jesus Christ, be with your spirit. And I think he's subtly saying, hey, Philemon, in order to live this out, you're going to need grace. And lucky for you, and you, and you, and you, he gives it freely. And he gives it in abundance. And I think it's, it's saying to Philemon, hey, Philemon, I know you're, you're going to forgive Onesimus. I have confidence in that. But, but Philemon, there might also be this day where you see Onesimus walking by you and something rises up in your heart and you realize that you're bitter again or you're angry again. And do you know what's going to be present in that moment, just like it is right now? God's grace. God's grace. Because forgiveness is the commitment to drop the offense anytime. Anytime I find myself carrying it. I heard this story a number of years and it just struck me. My guess is that many of you in this room remember this event as well. The year was 2006. The month was October when a man by the name of Charlie Roberts walked into a one-room Amish schoolhouse and opened fire. He killed five young girls and then turned the gun on himself and took his own life afterwards. The Amish community was sent just in absolute turmoil. And yet, that same day, their community came and they issued a response to the public. And their response was, we forgive Charlie Roberts. And there was these ripple effects that just started to take place. But they didn't just stop with the words, we forgive. A few days later, Terry Roberts, Charlie's mom, held a very small, intimate memorial service for her son. 
And as they were honoring his life and remembering him, she started to see a a crescent of people form around her. About 40 people from this Amish community holding hands and surrounding her. Later on, she would say, I have never felt so much love in my entire life. It was that act of love that started to reshape this whole story because Terry was invited to be friends with some of the people who her son had wronged. Even to this day, 14 years later, I guess 15 now, she still cares for one of the girls that her son injured. Every Thursday, she shows up at their house to help take care of her. That's the power of forgiveness. That's the beauty of reconciliation. That's the hope of the gospel, you guys. And see, the truth of the matter is that forgiveness doesn't change what was done in the past, but it does free you to walk into the future. So what might that look like in your life? What might that look like in your life tonight, this week? How might you bring good news of the new world? Would you bring back that person to your mind who the Spirit brought forward early in our time together? And would you just answer or finish this sentence with them in mind? This week, I will. This week, I will. Maybe it's this week, I will forgive someone. Maybe this week, I'll ask for forgiveness. Maybe this week, I'll take one step towards reconciliation. Maybe for some of you, maybe this week, you need to forgive yourself. You're just beating yourself up. And Jesus is saying, gosh, will you drop that? Maybe this week you say, I want to be the kind of person, as much as it depends on me, I want to live at peace with all people. I don't want to have any regrets when I get to the end of my life. I want to do whatever I can to make things right where they've gone wrong. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so grateful for your grace that's strong, that challenges us, that loves us. Lord, for the people in this room tonight who are wounded and who are hurting, Lord, I pray that they would know your presence with them intimately, your love for them strongly, your grace towards them powerfully. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would break down strongholds, that you would allow people to release bitterness and anger, maybe that they've been carrying for years. God, I pray that feuds would end tonight, that reconciliation would begin, that forgiveness would be offered, and that freedom would be realized. Spirit of God, fall afresh on us. Do the work that only you can do. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our service. We'd love to have you join us in person. 
For more information about our church and service times, please visit efcc.org. If you would like to support the ministries of Emmanuel Faith, you can do so at efcc.org give.